Greetings to all who are worshiping here at First Pres this morning. Greetings to those in St. Andrew's Hall and other spaces around campus. Greetings to those who are worshiping online as well. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 51. The Bible in the pew provided for you has our text on page 560. We actually return to our study in the life and story of David. Psalm 51 is a more deeper look at David's confession of his sin and his experience of God's healing grace and mercy. Our theme this morning is brokenness, God's pathway to Christian formation. A pastor friend of mine told me that a member of his church came into his office sobbing uncontrollably and could not get over the sin, the guilt, the shame of his own personal failure. He said, I know the gospel says that I should be able to shake this, but my heart is so heavy, I am so sad, I feel so dirty and embarrassed. So many people know just how wicked and evil I am. Some of you may battle with besetting sins, particularly guilt and shame. You may feel so devastated that you don't know where to turn. My pastor friend did not know what to say to this member, but he said this. I think you should begin to read Psalm 51 regularly. I think you should read Psalm 51 for the next month, and then I'll get together and pray with you, and let's discuss what God does in your heart by way of healing you and allowing you not only to accept the brokenness and sinfulness in your own life, but the mercy and the loyal love that is offered in Jesus Christ. Psalm 51 does tell us that we're going to have to take a deep look this morning into the dark recesses of our hearts. But Psalm 51 also tells us that we can, in embracing brokenness and humility, live lives full of joy and full of praise. We, like David, can not only pray, restore to us the joy of our salvation, we can expect that we can live in that joyfulness. I think there's likely three groups of people here today. The first group might be people who still don't see the horror of their sin and are still callous to the grace and mercy of God. They rationalize, blame shift, and really think that their sin is uh, something of an inconvenience, but they don't understand or really have embraced that their sin is offensive to God, or they don't understand the magnitude of God's grace. There's a second group, maybe those that think that they are or others are too high and holy to experience a fall like we will see and reflect on. Maybe you think that that could never happen to me, or maybe that would never happen to him. He's a pastor, or he's an elder, or he's a spiritual leader. The third group could be someone here today that just believes, I've messed up my life so much, I've blown it so badly, 
that though God might forgive me, I can never, ever put the pain of my sin behind me. If you fall in one of those three categories, this psalm is for you, this sermon is for you. Truly, truly, brokenness is God's pathway to spiritual healing and humility is the way we experience God's love and mercy. Read with me from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, O God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice within me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Father, we do need a fresh touch of grace and mercy this morning. Each of us comes at different places with different burdens that we're carrying. I trust, Lord, that you will touch us, give us a fresh touch of grace and joy this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because God is merciful, this text tells us that we must live humble and broken lives. That word brokenness is a trendy word these days. Therapeutic and Christian circles often describe a person's life as being broken. I had a pastor tell me that he has a campus minister in his, that worships with him in his church, who rarely tells students that they're sinners, but often says, your problem is that you're broken. Was that sufficient enough just to tell people that their problem is broken? What do we mean when we say broken? It is true that the word broken 
is used in the Bible, often it's used to describe something that is useless or devastated or defeated or has uh, been destroyed. A broken bow is a bow that no longer can fulfill the purpose and usefulness that it has. But this text uses that word broken. Speaking of our spirit, it says a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. David is talking about humility here. Brokenness in the sense that our sinfulness drives our hearts to humility, to depend on God, and in God's presence it leads us to praise Him. Because God is merciful, we not only can live humble lives, we must live humble lives of praise. And we'll see in the text, as the outline in your bulletin points out, that there's four sections here. One is that we are made humble by God first and foremost when we cling to His mercy and grace as our reconciler. Secondly, as we learn to confess and forsake our sins in repentance. That's verses 3 through 5. Third, it's a very important section here. As we learn to count on God to use consequences in our life to redeem us. It's verses 6 through 9. And then the pattern of asking and calling out to God to work restoration. That's verses 10 through 19. I'll admit to you that as a young man in the ministry, being broken or humble was not my highest priority. I knew that the Lord had saved me and His grace had changed my life, but I wanted to be prepared. I wanted to be equipped. One of my favorite memory verses was 2 Timothy 2, 15. Present yourself as God to God as those approved, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And I did not want to be ashamed. I wanted to be prepared. And I trained and I memorized and I studied scripture and I watched and listened to mentors and I went to seminars and I studied my classes because I wanted to be prepared. But I wasn't really ready for ministry on the inside. In some ways, I spent most of my time working on the container on the outside and not focusing on the contents on the inside. This text says that God is concerned about our hearts. God is concerned about our humility and shaping our hearts. Now, when I knew that I was struggling is when I would begin to see unsettled frustrations within my heart. When someone would point out flaws in my actions or my words, I was very defensive. When I would make a mistake or fail, I would either make excuses or rationalize or blame someone else for the fact that I had not achieved the goals that we had set. I was often angry and bitter and impatient with the weakness and the failings of others. And I was quick to point out the flaws in other people. Now, I don't know if those descriptions describe you, but those are indicators of something that's not right on the inside. All of your focus is on the outside and not on the inside. David is being taken on a deeper journey here at his worst moment. 
Can you think about your worst moment? Can you think about that which you're the most, the action that you're most ashamed of or the statements or the things that you've said that you know that you're embarrassed about? If you're like me, I want to cover that up. I don't want anybody to know my worst sins. David here records not only for Israel, his contemporaries, but for all the people of God. He records his worst sins because David is a broken and contrite man. God is taking him on a deeper journey. I'll ask you this morning, are you broken? Are you contrite? Do you long for humility? This text gives us four ways that God builds our hearts into humble hearts. To those that are broken or crushed, that he might restore us. You see, God wants to break and crush our pride, our self-sufficiency, our autonomy, our insecurity. And he wants to fill our hearts with the fullness of his love. First and foremost, David here confesses his sin. But to get the context, turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be picking up next week in 2 Samuel of these consequences that Nathan gives David. He tells David that the sword will not depart from your house. But he says in verse 9 of chapter 12, David, you have despised the word of the Lord. You have done this evil in God's sight. As you struck down Uriah by the sword, you took his wife to be your wife. You killed him by the sword of the Ammonites. And through your conspiracy and intrigue and lying, you used your army to do dreadful things. Well, what's the consequence? It says, the sword shall not depart from your house, David, because you have despised the Lord. Verse 13, David responds to Nathan and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. It's really just two words in the Hebrew. Sinned, Yahweh, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan, speaking for God, says, The Lord will also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that will be born shall die. Then Nathan went on to his house. David begins the psalm not speaking of his sin. He begins the the psalm speaking of God's mercy and his love. Look in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. The tense of the words are repeating themselves. It's as if David is clinging to and repeating this. You are merciful. God, I remind you that you are loyal to your covenant. I remind you that you promised to bring about cleansing. And I desperately need your cleansing. At David's worst moment, his greatest failure, 
He turns to God and he throws himself on the mercy of the heavenly court. He says, I have no argument. I only hope that you are true to your word and your character, that you are full of mercy, that you are full of grace. He uses this word that God has given to describe God's nature and name. It's the word said, which means God's covenant loyal love. God gave that word to Moses that I am the Lord rich in steadfast love, slow to anger. And here David reminds the Lord, you are loyal. I'm dependent on your name for forgiveness. In the New Testament, Jesus's name, the name of Jesus, is that promise of God's loyal love. When we're under the banner of the name of Jesus, when we are forgiven by the work of Jesus, we move into God's presence and we can ask for forgiveness. We can ask for cleansing. We can expect mercy. Much like in Luke 18 when Jesus tells the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee before the Lord is praying and he is listing all the things that he's done for God and why God should accept him. But the publican, Jesus says, did not raise his head towards heaven. He beat his breast and he cried out, Lord, have mercy to me, the sinner. And Jesus says that this one goes down from the temple justified for he who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. Embracing your brokenness starts with humbling yourself and asking for the appropriation of God's mercy. So first, clinging to God's mercy and covenantal love. It should be like the counselors tell us, mindfulness. It should be gospel mindfulness, where we constantly are setting our mind, not simply on Sunday morning, but in the mornings, in the afternoons, in the evening, on God's mercy and God's love, shaping our attitudes, giving us a sense of his presence. Cling to God in his mercy. The second way that we grow in humility is we grow in repentance. We confess and forsake our sin. You see that in verses three through five. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is demonstrating his repentance by confessing and forsaking his sin. He's not avoiding it. He's not ignoring it. He's not excusing it. He is confessing it and forsaking it before the Lord. I've heard someone say once that spiritual maturity is not how much you sin. Spiritual maturity is how quickly you identify and confess and forsake your sin and how delightful you move towards God in confessing your sin. You see, confessing and forsaking our sin reminds us of our nearness with God. If Jesus has forgiven us, our relationship with God is already secure. But sinfulness and the lack of confession affects our fellowship with God, our experience of his nearness. And so for the Christian, 
Our occupation, our vocation, should be to perfect the practice of repentance. Martin Luther said it this way, all of the Christian life is repentance. John Calvin said that repentance is the fruit of true faith and that while we need to even repent of our repentance because it's flawed, we need to practice the practice of confession and forsaking of our sin on a regular basis. Yes, on Sunday morning when we gather, but when you wake up in the morning, as you go through the day, the practice of repentance is practicing the presence of God. As I mentioned, David could have covered up his sin. He had the authority to expunge this historical event from the record of Israel. He could have just eliminated this in the public record. He had the power to do it. He'd done it for 18 months. And yet, he does just the opposite. He writes it in a song that was to be sung every year by the people of God. And for thousands of years, we continue to sing this song. It's the song of repentance. We even see that David doesn't blush. He's brash about praising God for this forgiveness. Rick Warren, the pastor at Saddleback Church, has started a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And it's a Christian version of the 12 steps of recovery uh, that we see in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they've seen amazing results from this ministry called Celebrate Recovery. I think David would call his program Celebrate Repentance. Celebrate the privilege that we have to confess and forsake our sin. God invites us to stay near to him. We do this by confession and by forsaking through repentance. So first, David clings to God's mercy. Secondly, he confesses and forsakes his sin. But this third point is very important because this point, I believe, is the place where many Christians get stuck or sidetracked in their Christian life. David says that because of God's mercy, we can count on God to even use the consequences and the circumstances of our life for redemptive purposes. Let me say that again. We can count on God to use the consequences that we have to walk through and the circumstances in our lives for redemptive purposes. You see this in verses six through nine. David says, there is a pathway that can teach you wisdom in the secret places of the heart. Look in verse six. Teach me wisdom in the secret places of the heart. What's that pathway? That's the pathway that he's beginning to journey on, where he will walk through the consequences of the sin in his own life that's affected his family, that's affected the kingdom. David says, I'm going to walk through these consequences, but I'm going to walk through this believing that you will teach me you, Lord, will teach me wisdom in the secret places of the heart. Look at verse 8. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, how many times have we rejoiced over a broken bone? But David is saying, 
I've been crushed because of my sin and the consequences that I'm going to walk through are humbling. They're crushing. And you're going to teach me to rejoice. How can we rejoice unless we know that God will use even our sinful actions to bring about redemptive purposes? He says, hide not your face from me, but hide your face from my sins. Blot them out, all of my iniquities. David is saying, do not allow my failures to keep me from experiencing your closeness. Now, we don't know what happened to David. He was in his mid-40s. Apparently, he grew complacent. Apparently, he thought he was too proud to fail. Maybe he thought that he could not disobey in such a destructive way. Often we do become comfortable in our walk with Christ. We become too comfortable with sin. And the Bible tells us we're setting ourselves up for a fall. If you're here this morning, I would ask you that question. Have you become too comfortable with your sin? That action that used to bother you no longer plagues your conscience. Maybe that word that used to trouble you when you gossiped or you spoke against another person, now you're just complacent, immune to the potential harm that that might cause. What about you that are married? Once you were pursuing biblical love, but now you've grown complacent, cold, and distant in your care and tenderness for one another or your devotional life. It used to be something that you woke up and looked forward to, but now studying the Bible and prayer, going to church regularly is just something that you go through the motions. It's heartless. You need, like David, to say, disrupt me from my comfort. I call this disruptive grace. When God breaks into circumstances or he asks us to walk through consequences that will teach us wisdom, that will bring about joy even in our sadness, and that will ask God to hide sin from our hearts so that he will not hide his face from us. During my studies and doctoral work at Fuller Seminary my second year, the assignment was to study spirituality from the third century of the church history movement to the time of the Reformation, the time when we mostly would call that the Dark Ages from the third century to the 15th century. But we mined deep truths and examples of how the people of God drew near to God in prayer and in the scriptures. And one leader I learned about was Benedict of Nursia. In 510 to 540 AD, he was a Benedictine monk, started a monastery and a movement, a movement that has continued to last for centuries. Benedict had his 12 steps towards humility, the 12 the latter are the 12 uh, rungs of humility. 
And he said, all of us that want deeper nearness with God have to pursue humility because God meets us in our humility. Apostle Paul says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We experience nearness when we humble ourselves. But I was struck particularly by three of his 12 in the ladder towards humility. He says, we should seek to subject ourselves to the direction of others. Think about that in our modern autonomous world today. Benedict says that we can experience God's humility when we intentionally place ourselves under and subject ourselves to the direction of others. You know, when you join a church, you do just that. Yes, the church belongs to Jesus Christ, but he's instructed spiritual leaders, human beings who are flawed and sinful to lead the church. But when you join a church and submit to the elders and the pastors, you grow in humility. When you, in a relationship, allow someone else to give you direction, rather than always having to be in charge and in control of direction, it grows humility. Another he gave is to patiently accept the difficulties of difficult people. He said, most of us, when we meet difficult people, we just slowly separate ourselves from them. But humility is to embrace a difficult person and to draw near to them and to show them the love of Christ because there's no one of us that was not difficult and God drew near to us. He also said, be radically honest about your own weaknesses and your faults when you talk to others. Just the opposite of what we normally do. This way it grows our humility. So the text says that we cling to God's mercy. Secondly, we confess and forsake our sins. Third, we count on God to use consequences redemptively. But then lastly, we call out to God that he would restore our lives. Here in verses 10 through 19, David is calling out to God and there's two things he's asking God. He's asking God for two miracles. The first miracle is that he asks God, would you change me? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, would you change me? He also says, God, would you use me? David, who has broken all the commandments, David, who has sinned against one of his own soldiers, David, who has lied to his family, David, who has deceived his military officers, he says, use me to teach sinners that they can be saved by grace. Restore, O Zion, the joy in Jerusalem. Why would David believe that God could use him? Because God is full of mercy. He asks for a miracle. He asks for God to change him and to use him. I'll ask you this morning, are you growing in humility? Let's go back to those three groups of people. What if you've never come to grips with the horror of sin? A lot of times this is teenagers that think, you know, Sin is just a social construct that parents use to try to keep us out of trouble. I want you to know, 
Sin is offense against a holy God. Have you come to grips with not only the danger of sin, but also the beauty of forgiveness? What sin are you hiding from your parents? What sin are you keeping from others? I want you to know that Psalm 32 says David was wasting away on the inside because he hid and he avoided repenting of his sin. Maybe you need to trust Christ today for salvation. What if you are one who thinks that you could never fall? You need to pray for God's mercy. You need to pray for your pastors and elders that God would protect us. Do you think that if the enemy would attack David, the man's after God's own heart, he wouldn't attack you? He's not attacking me. He's not attacking this church. We're experiencing an amazing time of growth in this church. I believe that the enemy would be attacking and seeking to create division, seeking to undermine holiness. Pray for your spiritual leaders. Pray for yourself. But what if you've fall in that category of one who thinks, I've made a mess of my life. I've blown it. God could never forgive me. Maybe you should start today reading Psalm 51 for the next month. Maybe you should start praying, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe you should ask the Lord to create in you a clean heart. Maybe you should ask the Lord to use all the destructive consequences that you've experienced, to use them redemptively in your heart, to give you wisdom, to restore joy to your life. I pray that you're here this morning with that hope. I pray that we could be a church where broken, sinful people come and they heal, and they discover hope, and they are put back together as people who can truly praise God as sinners who've been forgiven and live in his grace. I'll close with this story of a prison in Brazil. Chuck Colson says that he was told that two Christian men were put in charge of a prison in Humada, Brazil. And they were told that they could use Christian principles, they could teach the Bible. As an experiment of sorts, they were given the keys to the prison and said, help these men on a restorative path to life. When Colson got there, he was so shocked by the happiness and the joy of the prison, the brotherliness of the men, the way that they cared for one another, the way that the place was so clean. Everywhere he went, he saw scripture verses of Psalms and Proverbs. Each day in the chapel, they read Psalm 51 and were reminded that they are sinners who've been saved by grace. When these two leaders took him to the inside of the prison, they showed them the cell where prisoners were tortured. They told Colson, there's only one prisoner that remains tortured in that cell Would you like to see the cell? Colson began to feel feel overwhelmed. Should we look at this? Is it even right or respectful? But they said, yes, come along. They opened the large, huge steel door and they looked in the place where 
Prisoners had been tortured in solitary confinement, beaten, and eventually put to death. All they saw in that cell was a huge wooden cross and a crucifix with Jesus on the cross. And they said to him, he's the only one doing time in this prison. He does time for the rest of us so that we can live in joy and brotherhood and hope because he's restored to us the joy of our salvation. I pray that that's your testimony. And I pray that our testimony together is that we declare the beauty and glory of God's grace. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the beauty of his humility. And Lord, I pray for each person here today, maybe someone who's callous towards their sin. Would you humble them by showing them your mercy? Maybe others that have become complacent. Humble us, Father, that we would not believe that we could not fall. And then for others who have blown it or they feel that their life is so much of a failure, they could never ask for you to heal them, to give them the joy and hope of the gospel. Be near to them, we pray. All this we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.